Lord Jesus Christ, we come needy, whether we realize it or not. We come poor, even if we feel rich. We come broken, even if we feel whole. And we come dirty, even if we feel clean. We pray that you would do in us whatever it is you have purposed to do in us today. And that in that you would strengthen us, heal us, cleanse us, raise us up, and make us a wonder to behold beside you. It's in your name and for your sake that we ask it. Amen. Well, our, our text this morning is Ephesians 2, 8 through, it should be 10, that was my fault, uh, 8 through 10. And this is the, the remainder of this passage here in chapter 2 before Paul takes another pivot. And in that pivot, a little bit later on, he's going to talk about the relationship between uh, God's original covenant people, the Jews, and his new covenant people, the Gentiles, who have been grafted together with the Jews to make one people of God through Christ Jesus. But for now, we're going to get this, and we're going to get it good. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Hmm. He's got a plan, folks. He's got a plan for you. It's a very detailed plan. Perhaps we should be in the habit of consulting him about his plan for us rather than our plans for him. Well, since I came here to be your pastor in uh, September of 2019, I have, I can honestly say I have labored diligently towards one basic goal. I've had one thing that I have earnestly desired to convey to you, and I've tried to convey it in almost every message that I've preached, almost every class that I've taught, almost every group that I've led. And my greatest desire for you and for me is that we would move past our assumptions about what we think we know about the gospel and about the church and about the Christian life, which may not be so much wrong as incomplete. And in their incompleteness, they will lead your thinking amiss. And when your thinking is wrong, then your believing is wrong. And then your acting is wrong sooner or later because you always act on what you sincerely believe to be true. You can't help it. That's how God made you. You think something's true, and then you act based on your assumptions. I can remember my first week here at Tabernacle, and it was during the, the week when I was uh, still getting set up, and, and I don't remember why, but I went into the gym, and I went into the walk-in cooler. I think I wanted to get some mustard for my sandwich, and I didn't turn the light on. That switches outside of the cooler, because I didn't think that I needed the light, and I opened the door, and I stepped into the cooler to grab the mustard or whatever, and to my horror, the door swung closed behind me and latched. And the last thing I could see 
was that little white sticker with red letters on it, and it's faded, and it's on the inside of the door, and I remember what I thought it said. I only glimpsed it for a second before the door closed, and what I thought it said was not helpful at all. What it actually says is, you are not locked in. But like I said, it's a pretty faded sticker, and the door was moving, and it was darkening. And so what I saw was, you are now locked in. (laughs) And so the door clicks closed, and it's pitch black, and it's 36 degrees, and I'm in shorts and a t-shirt, and I'm thinking to myself, great, I'm stuck in a cooler in an empty church in Ohio in the dark, and the sticker on the door is mocking me. And then I thought, thank God I trained for this, because 36 degrees in the dark is May weather in South Dakota, and I had plenty of mustard, so I should be good for a week or two. Fortunately, I'm inquisitive, and I figured out the interior latch in the dark after a few minutes. I sat there, and I counted the number of letters on that sign, and I had those letters 94.2% correct. But that 5.2% error, or 5.8% error rather, could have led to me spending the weekend in a dark cooler. Almost all the drama around here in the recent past, both before I got here and after, mostly had to do with a lack of understanding about the Christian life, about the church, about the human condition before coming to Christ about what it means to come to Christ, about how we're empowered to live after we come to Christ, and what God's grand overarching purpose is for us and for the church. Without a sufficient understanding of all these things, wrong assumptions are nurtured, and then sincere and well-meaning but mistaken actions are proposed, and from there all sorts of mistaken Actions are made and bad consequences follow. And nobody intends to do it that way. It just comes from a lack of thorough understanding about the way things actually are. Now, I want to lead you in a different way. I want you to see, I want you to see, uh, I'm sorry, I want to see if I can help you catch a larger vision and catch it in such a way that the truth that you do know integrates seamlessly with the larger pattern of God's truth and comes to life for you in a new way. I want you to see something that when I saw it was so breathtakingly beautiful that it just stunned me. And frankly, I've never gotten over it. You see, God has a plan. And in His plan is and always has been an ongoing, continuous, worldwide revolution. This was promised by God through Abraham in Genesis twenty-two eighteen, where God said, and in your offspring, or in your seed is the actual Hebrew, shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. And then you look at your whole Old Testament, and the whole history of God's dealings with Israel are the outworkings of His plan for Israel to produce that particular seed, that particular offspring through which the one who would bless the whole world was to come. That is, of course, the God-man, 
Christ Jesus. And what Jesus Christ brought into the world through His own person and His own work in this world, in the spiritual world that we can't see, and particularly at the nexus of those two worlds on the cross, is the only effective solution for what's really wrong with this world. It's interesting, when you sit down and study the sweep of human thought moral thought throughout history, both in the East and in the West, and you look at what they say about what's wrong with the world, it's remarkable the level of agreement between all these different religions and philosophies from all over the world about what's wrong. And basically they say what's wrong is that human beings cannot consistently do the things that virtually everybody acknowledges that we all ought to do. And if those things were consistently done, everyone agrees that most of the world's problems would vanish almost immediately. And we would have then the opportunity to cooperate with each other to solve or relieve the few stubborn problems that were left. But we can't ever manage that, can we? No matter how intelligently, no matter how diligently, no matter how sincerely we try, and there have been many, many very serious efforts all over the world, some large, some small, down through human history, to try and accomplish that goal, to just get people to do what everyone knows people ought to do. Just, just even something as simple as don't do things to other people that you wouldn't want them to do to you. I mean, every major moral thinker in the history of the earth has come up with something like that almost all on their own. You can find it in China, you can find it in India, you, you can find it in the Middle East, you can find it in Western thought, in Plato and Aristotle. Almost everybody agrees that'd be a pretty good way to run the world. Just don't do stuff to other people that you wouldn't want them to do for you. And nobody manages to do that. Nobody manages to do that. And there have been efforts to try to make people do that. We're actually currently living through two major efforts right now in our world today, though I think that they will somehow merge into one big sloppy one. Let me give you those two. What goes by the name of wokeism in America and in Europe today is really an attempt to get people to adopt and practice a moral code. And their, their method for doing it is to bully people and to use threats to their well-being if they deviate from that prescribed moral code or even if they have deviated from it even in the distant past when the moral code was not some kind of cultural consensus by a large number of people. And so they'll punish people for stuff they tweeted when they were 14 years old and have. And, and it's not a very good moral code. It's actually a very deficient moral code, and it's very unstable because it, it relies on collective outrage to decide moment by moment what's wrong and what's right. And that's been tried before, too. The French Revolution is one of the main examples I could point you to, and, and it always ends badly. Always. There is a second, much more serious attempt at creating a moral paradise in this world, and that's happening in China 
right now today where they are using massive networks of surveillance technology to monitor almost all the citizens almost all the time. And these surveillance networks use artificial intelligence and facial recognition software and their cell phone uh, uh, signals to track people and to watch them visually through cameras on the streets everywhere and the buses and everywhere and analyze their behaviors in the context of what's called a social credit system. And in China today, if a person does the things that the state wants him to do, he gets more privileges. If he does things the state doesn't want him to do, like cross the street in the middle of the block, or throw a cigarette butt on the ground, or go to church, he loses privileges. And if he persists in those behaviors that the state doesn't want him to do, he can lose his freedom or even his life. In both cases, this moral coercion applies to almost everyone, except, of course, the people who are making up the rules for everyone else. But more importantly, all of this stuff can't change the human heart. People will behave a different way when the moral enforcers aren't looking. And so the moral enforcers are trying to create a state of affairs where they're just always looking. And you can just ask Siri or Alexa about how that works, and they'll explain it to you. You see, George Orwell actually prophesied all of this in the 1930s and the 1940s. In particular, in his final book, 1984, he showed how the states need to regiment the behavior of citizens and to, ac- and, and to regulate their access to information in the face of a civilizational crisis would lead to a living nightmare of control and coercion for most people, while the leadership class exempted itself and lived in self-indulgent luxury and debauchery. You see, the only possible way for the world to even begin to be set right is if significant numbers of people have their hearts changed. And they have their hearts changed in such a way that they can be counted on to reliably do the right thing as a freely chosen action through the retraining of their body's automatic responses and they would do it, <clears throat> excuse me, joyously. They would do the right thing even if it was personally costly to themselves. They would be able to do that because they were confident of God's willingness and God's ability to care for their well-being in the world. So they didn't need to worry about it. That's why the Bible talks about those who swear vows, uh, that the Lord loves a person, they have a particular affection for a person who swears a vow and keeps it even to his own hurt. Because God says, that person's committed to the truth, and I'm going to take care of them, even if they hurt themselves by keeping that vow. And this is precisely what God's ongoing worldwide revolution is all about. It's about the transformation of human beings, the renovation of human hearts into Christ-likeness, in sufficient numbers to transform a society from the bottom up. You may say, well, that's a pipe dream. That'll never happen. You're wrong. On the authority of God's Word, first of all, you're wrong, but even on the authority of history and human experience, you're wrong. You see, it doesn't take anything like a majority of the society being transformed for this to happen. Jesus, for instance, said that His disciples are the salt 
of the earth. It does not take that much salt to season and preserve a slab of meat. He said of his disciples that they are the light of the world. Do you know that when I was a child in New Mexico and my dad and I were backpacking way up in the mountains, we saw somebody light a match in the dark seven miles away. We saw that light. Because it was pitch black and the only light was the light of the stars. There wasn't a moon that night. And we were sitting there and we both saw it as they lit the match and then they lit their campfire. And we thought, well, they must be quite close since we can see it. And the next day we walked that direction to go fishing and we discovered it was seven miles away. So in great darkness, even a little light can be very profound. Now the Bible calls this process of human transformation, discipleship. And that's a word that we kind of need to reclaim because all kinds of things have come and gone under the name of discipleship in the church in the last hundred years. We need to, to dust off the biblical understanding of what discipleship is. And I like to actually call it apprenticeship. I mean, this is a, this is a blue-collar union area. We've got apprentices in this church right now, apprentice electricians, and some of you have been apprentice auto workers or apprentice construction workers or apprentice welders or whatever. Jesus wants to put us in an apprenticeship with him. That's the, what discipleship really is. Now, there are two ways in which God has moved in history to show us how this works. Way number one. In the early church, we saw powerful waves of human transformation all over the known world at that time. The disciples of Jesus Christ lived such different lives, such beautiful and attractive lives, such lives of self-emptying joy that was so obviously backed by the continual inpouring of some power somewhere else that the early Christians went from being a persecuted and despised tiny minority to the official religion of the Roman Empire within the space of about 350 years. Now, this is unprecedented in human history. This was not a religion of conquest like Islam was. You know, Islam spread by the sword, and it was a mighty force to be reckoned with, but people didn't mostly take it upon themselves freely. They mostly took it upon themselves to save their lives. And so for these people to come and come to Jesus knowing what it would cost them and how painful it could be and that it could cost them their lives, it could cost them their, their well-being, it could cost them their money, it could cost them their families, they said, it doesn't matter, I have found a treasure hidden in a field and I'm going to sell everything I have to buy that field. I've found a pearl of great price, and I'm going to sell everything I have so I can have this pearl. And so the church then transformed the society because the church was full of transformed people who were living in that society. Now, during that 350-year period, it's interesting what the church did and didn't do. The church understood themselves to be separated in a radical way from the prevailing culture, even as they lived in the midst of that prevailing culture. They didn't see themselves as having any role in shaping the politics or the morals or the prevailing thought of the secular culture at all. They didn't uh, tell the rulers how they ought to rule. 
They didn't write letters to Caesar and say, Caesar, we really think this policy is against family values and we would like to see you change it. No, no. The only thing they did when they encountered a ruler as a, as a, as a, within the course of everyday life, they would urge that person to repent and to come to Jesus. But that's it. And the only other thing they did was they would make carefully argued written documents that were called apologies to these secular rulers in order to persuade them that Christianity was actually a force for good in the world and therefore the rulers shouldn't listen to their enemies and critics. The rulers should therefore leave the Christians in peace to practice their faith. But that was it. Writer Aaron Wren has some really interesting things to say on this matter in his brilliant essay called The Lost World of American Evangelicalism. I think there's a slide for it. There should be. <clears throat> Listen to what Aaron Wren said. I actually talked with him about this. I was trying to get this document, and he can't find it. But uh, anyway, computers. I took an inventory of every single command that he, Paul, issued in the New Testament and divided them into various categories. They are overwhelmingly concerned with unity in the church and personal holiness. There are remarkably few commands that concern the outside world at all, and most of them involve accommodating oneself to it with the least possible disruption. Be in subjection to the governing authorities. Pay your taxes. Try to remain at peace with all men. Although his mission brought him in conflict with the world, fighting with the world was not on his agenda, and he did not try and change any secular political policies. He held people to a very high bar within the church, but the world outside of the church, apart from seeking converts, was not much of a concern. Now, isn't that interesting? Paul said, church, focus on being who Jesus wants you to be, and don't worry about the world. And it changed the world. It changed the world. And it changed the world from the ground up in a deep way that the authorities couldn't stop even when they tried. Now, why did Paul operate like that? Because here's why. Because telling unconverted people to try harder at instituting and living by Judeo-Christian ethics doesn't work. They can't live right because their malformed hearts won't let them, and it will just produce manifold hypocrisies. And the enemies of God will point out every one of those hypocrisies every time and beat us with that club. No, no. The early church then uh, had another strategy. They had a very rigorous and all-encompassing practice of spiritual formation or discipleship that was incredibly effective at transforming human hearts into Christ-likeness with the help of the Holy Spirit. And it was very hard to get into the early church. You show up at the early church and say, I want to join. They say, all right, there's a three-year training program before you can join, before you can be baptized or take communion. And some churches had a, a, a later on a, a shorter one, maybe as short as a year. But, but it wasn't just come to a class once a week. It was, it was like boot camp. It was all-encompassing 
It was, if you're not at work or doing your secular job, you're here with us, learning to be transformed like Jesus Christ. This, this, uh, this spirit-assisted process of formation was called the catechumenate, and the people who took advantage of it were called catechumens. And after one to three years of training, if the bishop decided that you were ready, you would be baptized, and you would be admitted to the Lord's table. And when that happened, you were prepared to live and die for Jesus Christ. And that catechumenate produced amazingly strong people and amazingly wise rulers. And that's the first way that God's done it. He did it in the early church, and the early church basically just did what Jesus said to do, and they did a little bit of experimentation with that and figured out the best way that that worked for them. The second way God has done this is by sending His Holy Spirit upon a particular place at a particular time in a way that produces very widespread spiritual change in a very powerful way in a very brief amount of time. And the surrounding culture is always, always radically impacted in a profound way as a result of that, and we call that revival. Revival. Now, I believe in revival. I long for revival. I pray for revival. I read all the time about revival. I would be thrilled to see revival in my lifetime, but you can't schedule a revival. You can't create a revival. Revival happens when God sovereignly moves. It it has to be His idea. So what are we left with? Well, we're left with the things that Jesus modeled and commanded in the pages of the New Testament. We're left with discipleship. The systematic process of teaching and training that when sincerely and rigorously pursued produces with the help of the Holy Spirit reliable Christ followers who are able to live lives of easy, routine obedience to Christ. Think about that for a minute. Just think about that. I think about like all the things that have bedeviled me when I'm trying to be a good husband or a good parent. And I... And the thing that bedevils me the most is the stuff that comes out before I have a chance to think about it. Isn't isn't it that way with you? Before you have a chance to think, boom, you've reacted. All she's got to do is give you that look, right? And you know what that look means because you've messed with that look for 40 freaking years and you're so sick of that look and the minute she screws up her face into that look, you're like, ow, gone. And he does it to you too, doesn't he? And, and you don't even have time to think about it. And I think to myself, Lord Jesus, how, how does this process get interrupted? You know, there's a way. There's a way. And it works. And discipleship is all about that way of changing you into what you're supposed to be. Now, we have an enemy. And our enemy is very smart. And he has multiple strategies in place right now to disrupt God's ongoing worldwide revolution. One strategy has been to drive, uh, to dupe the church into ignoring the biblical model that I just described that Paul used about what the gospel is and about how the gospel addresses lost men and women as individuals whose individual hearts need to be transformed both for their own good and the good of the world. And that what the devil wants us to do then is to try and get the church to proclaim a message of moralism to the world. To try and get the church 
to tell the world to do what the Bible explicitly tells us that the world can't do in any meaningful way. The natural man does not accept the things of God. They are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them. 1 Corinthians 2, 9. The mind set on the flesh is death. It cannot submit to God's law, nor does it want to. That's Romans 8. And we say, well, they could do a little better than they're doing, so let's just try and figure out a way to make them do better. Let's just give them some rules. And, and so we try and get them to, to adopt certain behaviors and certain moral codes and, and, and to try a little harder and act a little more ethically and make the world a better place. Now, this began actually in the 1880s with the mainline churches. The, the church by then had really lost confidence in the gospel in a widespread way and in the, the scriptures and the authority of the scriptures in a widespread way. And, and they instituted instead what we call the social gospel movement. And this was basically a marriage of Christianity <clears throat> and the progressive politics of that era. And people were so optimistic. They were so excited. They were so confident that human nature was basically good and was basically perfectible by moral reform and good education, along with good nutrition and health and hygiene. It was interesting, when Laura and I were <clears throat> in Scotland, my voice is dying here, I don't know why. When Laura and I were visiting Scotland, I, I have some friends over there, and from time to time, I've been able to go over for extended visits and stay with them. Or I even actually did, I, I spent a month in Scotland, and I, I preached at my friend's church, lived in his house and drove his car, and he came to America and did the same in my place. And so we had a wonderful vacation, and we went to this place south of Glasgow called New Lanark Mill, and it was a, it was a mill for the creation of, of woolen fabrics and uh, run by water wheels because there was a waterfall there. And it was, a, it was one of these proto-socialist new communities where the workers were paid a decent wage, children weren't allowed to work, everybody was expected to be clean, they actually had inspectors to come in and make sure people were keeping their house clean and there weren't bugs and things like that in it, and there was a certain amount of time off and everything, and this was the new model, this was going to create the worker's paradise, and, uh, and they tried to export it to New Harmony, Indiana, and there's a, another colony there, and both of those just failed for various reasons. I mean, it was a nice idea. But they thought, well, we're, we're going to fix this world. We're going to fix this world by peddling morality. And they were so confident that they could do that, that, that human beings were basically good and that our nature was basically predict, uh, perfectible. And so uh, they really thought that the civilized Christian nations of Europe and North America were going to lead the way to a kind of a heaven on earth. There's a, a hymn written in 1896 by a, a liberal hymnodist named Henry Ernest Nichol. It's called, We Have a Story to Tell to the Nations. And the, the, uh, the refrain goes like this, and the darkness will turn to dawning, and the dawning to noonday bright, and Christ's great kingdom will come on earth, the kingdom of love and light. That's not about Jesus breaking into history all of a sudden. That's about everything getting better every day until we're all so good and so enlightened that basically most of our problems just go away. And they really thought, they really thought Germany and France and the United Kingdom and Holland, all these, that we're going to lead the way. North America, Canada and the United States, we're going to lead the way and we're going to show the world how wonderful it can be if we all just get moral. And then you know what happened? 
From 1914 to 1918, those civilized Christian nations rose up against each other in a way that was entirely avoidable and completely pointless. And they instituted an industrialized, mechanized kind of war such as the world had never seen before. And within four years, about 22 million people died. Those were unprecedented numbers in any war before that. Nothing nearly like that had ever happened before. 22 million people died. And roughly half of that 22 million people were civilians going about their daily lives, not soldiers. So they were basically murdered. Basically, thank you. I'm going to drink that now. So, so not only did a bunch of soldiers die, a bunch of innocent people died. And nobody, nobody was like trying to stop it or anything. It just happened. Well, we, you got to break a few eggs to make an omelet was the kind of thing. And so by the end of that, just as to give you an example of how destructive that was, by the end of that war in Britain, there were 200,000 more women who wanted to get married than there were men to marry because of the destruction of that whole generation, the flower of their youth, was just destroyed, either dead or deeply wounded and broken. And that really caused a psychological crisis for all these liberal Christians. They were like, I can't believe we're that bad. Well, that must have been a fluke. We'll try a little harder. We'll, we'll learn our lesson. And they tried a little harder through the 1920s. And then the 1930s arose. And then it, Hitler and World War II and the Holocaust. And that was just the stuff that they were willing to look at because they also, while they were doing that, they turned a, a blind eye to the, to the murders in the Bolshevik Revolution and to Stalin financing his industrial policy by seizing all of the grain in Ukraine and selling it so that he could have factories to build cars and things like that. And he condemned 3.5 million Ukrainians to death by starvation. This is an event known as Holodomor. And the left, including the Christian left, actually suppressed reports about it because they didn't want it to become known because it would make the Soviets look bad. And these are the people who are, who are bringing us forward to the workers' paradise. We're, you know, they're atheists, but they're just a little mixed up about that. And, and we think that they are going to do a good job of bringing about peace and justice on the earth. So let's not tell anybody that they just starved 3.5 million people to death. Let's not tell anybody about children who are so hungry after their parents died that they literally killed and ate their siblings. Let's not talk about that. And so they suppressed it. There was a, a Welsh journalist named Gareth Jones who was an eyewitness to that, who escaped his Soviet handlers in Moscow and went to Ukraine and wandered around for two weeks on the ground. And when he came back and told his story, they not only didn't want to hear it, they got him fired and they canceled him. And then they destroyed him. They destroyed his credibility and they destroyed his ability to work. And there was a New York Times reporter whose name you might have heard before, Walter Durante, who was in Moscow and he was a stooge of Stalin's. And he denounced this guy and said, this is all lies. I personally talked to Stalin and everything's fine. Well, they gave that reporter a Pulitzer Prize. The New York Times hasn't asked the Pulitzer Prize to be taken back. Everybody now knows that Durante was a liar. And they, they still kept that Pulitzer Prize on his desk. 
And they just canceled him. And then later, they murdered him. The Soviets murdered him in order to silence him. There's a, there's a very good movie about him put out in 2020. It's called Mr. Jones. It's available for rent on Amazon. And I highly recommend it. I highly recommend it. But since the 1970s, folks, the Christian right has been doing the same thing that the left did from the 1890s all the way up to the 1970s. Moralisms for the unconverted, mostly around sex, never around greed or mammon. And now what's left of the millennial generation of evangelical Christians is actually going back to the political left to try that again and see how that'll work out. And Satan just laughs. Satan laughs. Well, that's one problem of his strategy. The second problem of his strategy is, is, is that God's plan for ongoing worldwide revolution relies on actual human beings actually being transformed. And so Satan has managed to spin things so that what is widely regarded as the gospel today is utterly disconnected from discipleship. I actually talked to one guy in this church who said, this is, when I was explaining all this and sharing all this within the context of a group, he said, this is amazing. I was never told this before. I just thought I was supposed to pray the prayer, ask Jesus in my heart, and wait to die. That was all I was ever told about what the Christian life was. Pray the prayer, ask Jesus into your heart, your sins are forgiven, you get to go to heaven when you die. Okay, I'm going to wait to die now. And that's my life. No, no. That, that, that's a perversion of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Instead, what is peddled instead of the gospel is an arrangement whereby on the basics of proper belief or an assent to certain doctrines or the praying of a certain prayer that's actually found nowhere in the Bible, God will see to it that you don't go to the bad place when you die, rather that you go to the good place. But that has developed in our culture in such a way that a person who has had that magical moment of mental ascent can have the worst character imaginable right up to the day of their death and still go to the good place as long as he believes the right things or he's prayed the right prayer. One, one preacher has called this gospel the gospel of the minimal entrance requirements for getting into heaven when you die. And it's a false gospel. When you do any digging into the results of this, as for instance, the Billy Graham organization has done, because this has been their model since the beginning, you will find that 90% of the people who have approached Christ and the Christian life in this way are utterly unchanged going forward. There's no difference between them and a person who hasn't done anything towards Christ. But here's the kicker. They all think they're going to heaven because that's what the church taught them to think. And as a result of that, there's no visible distinction between people who say they're Christians and non-Christians. And the statistics will back that up, and I can show you the studies. George Barna, Growing True Disciples, if you want to read a detailed statistical analysis of the difference that praying the prayer makes in the lives of people. 90% of people, no difference. And so the greatest tragedy to me is the massive numbers of people who are going to hell because they thought they had heard and responded to the gospel of Jesus Christ when the gospel was never actually clearly communicated to them. Loved ones, here in the first 10 verses of Ephesians chapter 2, we have the fullness of the gospel in a very condensed form. 
Now, I thought it was interesting this week. I, I heard from several of you this week, um, and, and, and you had words of appreciation for last week's sermon because the, the three sermons before last week's sermon, some of you said they made you feel bad about yourself. And last week's sermon made you feel better about yourself. Now, there's a way to understand that, which is okay. If what you mean is Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, makes you feel bad about the general situation of unconverted human beings and how you were before you were converted, but Ephesians 2, 4 through 7, makes you feel grateful that you're no longer in that general situation on account of the work of Christ in your life, that's okay. But if you simply mean that being told that you were once dead in trespasses and sins and a slave of Satan and under God's wrath makes you feel icky, but being told that now everything's okay makes you feel better, then I have to say the only thing you've missed is the point. Because the point is you're not here to generate positive emotions and encouragement and feel up so that you can get through your week. That's not the function of the worship of the people of God. What you're here is to hear the truth. It's to hear the words of life, which can alone transform you and transport you to a place of joy unspeakable and peace beyond your understanding that guards your heart and mind in Christ Jesus, no matter what's happening elsewhere. So here's the gospel in Ephesians 2, very quickly. We were all in a hopeless situation, alienated from God in every possible way and unable and unwilling to do anything that might improve our situation even a little bit. And in his great sovereign pity and love, God reached down and he touched us and he brought us to spiritual life like he brought Lazarus back to life in the days of Jesus. And this was an, an act of just inexplicable, unfathomable love. There was no reason for it except for his good pleasure and his desire to have us praise his glory and experience his rich gifts for all eternity. And this is how he did it. He united us together with Christ in an organic spiritual union so that all of the mighty and strong and beautiful good things that are true of Christ also become true of us. And all of the ugly, deadish, wrath-provoking things about us are laid on Christ's account. And he suffers for them on the cross. Now, how do you get into that union with Christ? Paul says, I'm glad you asked. I'm going to tell you. Here's how you get into that marvelous, life-giving, life-transforming union with Christ. First of all, it is by grace. Now, we've got a, a really just a bad, inaccurate, hackneyed definition of grace in our modern times. It, we, we say, well, it, it's, uh, it, it's unmerited favor. Well, that doesn't really tell you anything more about it than what you knew a minute ago. What does it, uh, what does it do? Well, grace is God working in your life to accomplish what you could never do on your own. And that is a gift on God's part. It's not something you can merit or earn. So you get into this union with Christ by God's gracious activity working in you to get you there. And what does God's gracious activity produce in you? It produces faith. A special kind of faith that we call saving faith. 
And this saving faith is also God's gift to you. If you analyze the grammar in Ephesians 2.8, you will see that clearly. God gives you grace, and God gives you as a part of that grace package the saving faith to come to Jesus. The saving faith. It's like this. Remember I talked about the jumper cables last week, my wrecker and the jumper cables. I'd drive up in my big one-ton Chevy wrecker, and I'd plug that thing into the front where the push bumper was, and I'd come, and I had power, and I'd put it on that dead battery, and that car would spring to life. Well, faith is like the jumper cable. Faith is what actually connects you to Jesus, what actually transforms you, the the power, transfers rather, the power into you by grace through faith. And what does that saving faith from God allow you to do? Well, it allows you to do three things. First of all, it allows you to see. It allows you to see your dreadful default condition. Second of all, it allows you to believe. It allows you to believe what God says about you, about himself, and about Christ, and what the Bible says is true. you got to believe that what God is saying is true. And third of all, it allows you then to lay hold of, to lay hold of Christ, and to receive all of his glorious benefits. And you rest in him then in a posture of peaceful, relaxed, confident obedience. You you enter into a life that's a different kind of life. It's a spiritual kind of life. It's an eternal kind of life. And you live that spiritual life together with Jesus and with other people who are also on that journey with Jesus. And that's the church. It's an interactive kind of life with Jesus where you walk together with him moment by moment in his easy yoke with his light burden. You know what a yoke is? It's it's how animals, particularly oxen, would pull a load, a cart or a plow or something like that. And when they're training a young ox or a young plow horse or a young mule to to learn how to become useful, they will yoke it together with a mature, well-trained one. They still do this today in the Arctic with sled dogs. You put your, your newbie sled dog in the back so that he can watch everybody else, and then you let the mature ones go forward and and that trains him. And in the beginning, he's not carrying hardly any of the weight. And as he grows and learns, he becomes more useful. Well, Jesus comes along you, alongside of you, and he says, here's my yoke. You just slide in there, and I'll take care of most of the burden. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light, he says. And what are you being trained to do while you're walking in that yoke? Well, well, God's purpose for that interactive life, walking beside Jesus, is to train you to live your life like Jesus would live your life if he was you. And so you begin to then become like Jesus if he was in your exact position. Now, you say, well, give me an example, Pastor. Okay. Let's say you're a cranky old lady, for instance. And you come to Jesus and you're joined by grace through faith uh, with Jesus. And on account of Jesus and your union with him, God forgives you for being a cranky old lady. But he's not done. You see, God doesn't just want to create a church full of forgiven, cranky old ladies. He wants to, any more than he wants a church full of forgiven drunks who are still drinking or forgiven adulterers who are still committing adultery. No, no. He wants to do an interactive work in you and with you, with the assistance of the Holy Spirit, to develop in you a gentle and quiet spirit, 
which God finds especially precious in a woman and which gives her a kind of beauty which will never, ever fade away. That's 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 4. And so you and God set to work together. You're like, I'm a cranky old lady. I don't want to be a cranky old lady anymore. I can't hardly help myself. I see those young people running around and I just want to wave my cane at them and yell at them. None of you do that. I know that. They, they, they do that down at Highway Tabernacle all the time, though. And when he's done that, when he's changed you, he wants to lift you up and show you off. It says that you're his workmanship. The, the word literally means artistic masterpiece. And, and, he, and after he's shaped you, and he's taken the cranky out and he's put the beautiful and the gentle and the kind and the patient in. He wants to lift you up and say, look at her. Isn't she amazing? And then, of course, you know, if you got anything that really you, you want to put it through its paces and, and you want to watch it work. So God says, look, I've got, I've got stuff. I've got a training course, a demonstration course. I, I've, got, I've got works prepared for you to walk in in advance that will showcase what I have done in you so that everybody can go, wow. She could never have done that before. And everybody look at her, man, God is good. And, and everyone watches you and everyone is entranced by your beauty. Only now in this interactive life with Jesus, that doesn't make you arrogant or haughty. It makes you joyously, radiantly thankful to God. And then you join with us in praising God for what he has done in you to make you so beautiful. And then you go out into the broken, dead, enslaved world, glowing, radiating God's goodness, his peace, his wholeness, his holiness, the beauty that he's wrought in you. You go out into that world and you find that people are drawn to you like a magnet. And they say, what is it about you? And you say, I was once a very cranky old lady, but God rescued me. God changed me, and he made me like I am today. He's not done yet, but he's done some wonderful things. And he can do the same for you. He can do the same for you. Come and let me show you how. Come let me show you how. Well, what then is the church? Well, can you not see then that God intends the church to be a place where cranky old ladies and grumpy old fart pastors and drunks and addicts and angry people and every other kind of sin that you can think of, scaredy cats, cowards, all these kind of people are transformed. The church is a school of life. It's a training center and the, the, the output of the training center is abnormally loving, courageous, holy people produced in inexplicably high numbers. That means that the church is not primarily a place for evangelism or for unbelievers. It may happen here, coincidentally, in the providence of God, but that's not what it's for. Evangelism is what happens out there when you leave here and you're carrying Jesus with you out into the world. And so then we don't need to worry about how do we arrange our church so the world likes it? Why would the world ever like it? They don't want God until you bring God to them by showing what he's done in you. 
They're welcome to come in. They're welcome to observe. If they want to learn how to live the interactive life with Jesus, we'll tell them. We'll lead them into a prayer where they pray to receive him sincerely and rely on him alone for justification and sanctification and everything else. We're happy to to disciple them and teach them to learn how to Jesus' life. But most of the evangelism takes place out there as you walk through your daily life. That's That's what the Great Commission says. As you are going... Make disciples of all nations. And what is a disciple? One who has been taught in such a way that he can do all that Jesus has commanded. It's not that he's taught he ought to do, but can't do all that Jesus has commanded. No, no, he's been taught to do all that Jesus has commanded in the name of the, and, and be baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. You see, the, the focus of the church is discipleship. It's training exercises which the Holy Spirit then uses to transform us and through our transformed lives to transform the world. That's how he did it in the ancient church. That's exactly how he did it in the ancient church. Now, I just want to ask you to think for a minute. Ask yourself, how much of the the horribly hurtful, destructive nonsense that has occurred at Tabernacle in the last, let's say, five years would never have happened if we had a widely shared understanding and expectation that we are all here only to train to become beautifully loving, holy people. And we're not going to let anything or anyone distract us from that mission, from that task. How much of this stuff would have happened? Almost none of it. You see, the world, now more than ever, desperately needs us It needs us to be what Jesus Christ calls us to be and wants to equip us to be if we will just hold still and cooperate with him. It desperately needs to see white people and black people and Latino people and Indians and Asians all together in one place, loving each other. It it needs us to see male and female, poor and rich, young and old, educated and uneducated, all together in one place, all dedicated to setting aside our fleshly desires and selfish ambitions to train together to be like Jesus and to help one another onward towards that goal, to manifest in our lives the beautiful workmanship of God and then to cooperate with him in all of the good works He's prepared for us. That's what we're about. And if we're not going to be about his business, he's going to do to us what he's done to the mainline churches that wouldn't do what they were supposed to do. He's just going to take our lampstand away. He's just going to withdraw. He's going to write Ichabod over the door like he did in that temple in Ezekiel's time. And the Holy Spirit's going to depart. We've got a job. We've got an amazing opportunity here. We have got the opportunity to show forth the power of God inside of us. Let's do it. Let's do it. I don't, I don't know how much time i got left. I'm 52 years old. I don't know how much time i got left. But I want to spend it doing that. I don't want to come to the end of my life and discover that I'd done a bunch of stuff. It didn't matter one whit for eternity. Lord Jesus Christ, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer.